You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 9, 18-34. While He was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before Him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. You know, I love stories, and so I read a ton of fiction all the time. Great stories surround my life, especially through audiobooks, whether I'm doing laundry or in a carpool line or walking to a coffee shop or doing yard work. I love for my heart and mind to just be immersed in great stories all the time. So much life there for me, and I'm sure many of you are the same way. Now, I read all kinds of stories. I read science fiction, historical novels, fantasy, contemporary dystopias, mythology, multi-book series, short stories. As long as it's well-written and engaging, I am totally happy. But there's one genre, one type of story, one family of stories that I find particularly haunting. There's a kind of story that, li- that sticks with you and you remember, even years later, you can remember a, a scene from a, from a novel or something that will catch you off guard. And, and the type of story, the type of group of stories of this is, has a name and we call it post-apocalyptic. In fact, we're kind of in the era of the post-apocalyptic novel. So just to name a few that I've read just in the last couple of years, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, very famous, Walter Miller's A Canticle for Leibowitz, or Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven, or maybe you've seen some film versions of things like Hunger Games or World War Z or Bird Box. All of these are like each other. They're all post-apocalyptic, and we call them that because They envision a world in the future that is our world, but things have broken down. And as a result, everything has changed. Life as we know it is disrupted and broken and radically distorted. And there are always stories about people trying to figure out how to live in this very unsettling place. 
whether it's caused by natural disaster or nuclear war or the earth being hit by an asteroid or genetically modified apes or genetically modified humans, whatever it is, these stories are very powerful and disturbing. And they're haunting to us, I think, because they reveal how fragile society and our lives really are. They reveal how little it would take for everything that you and I think of as normal, as expected, as even required, how easily that could be wiped out. For example, just, just think if our entire electrical grid went out, whatever the cause, cyber attacks, cosmic flares, whatever, think about how quickly society would radically change and break down, how dark it would be at night, the inability to cool food, all the medical equipment that's dependent on electricity, water treatment plants, security systems, Instagram, right, and TikTok, all these things would be gone. And maybe in the first service, some people applauded at that moment. Maybe that'd be positive. But we see glimpses of this kind of breakdown of society when natural disasters happen and how quickly looting occurs and, and society breaks down. And that's just electrical. What if there are all kinds of other things that could happen? What if money became meaningless? What if worldwide disease struck what if the russians successfully released the demogorgons from the upside down if that if that doesn't mean anything to you look it up all right either way it's scary and when you start to think about how desperate our lives would get and how quickly everything we think is normal could be wiped out our plans our hopes our securities our pleasures our bank accounts as these apocalyptic novels show it's haunting Welcome to church. <laughs> I know that's not very encouraging. Wow, I'm glad I came to church, Dr. Pankton. You're a real encourager. I understand that's not a very encouraging thought, but I want you actually just to kind of put that in the back of your head, maybe let it haunt you for a little bit, and I want to come back to it as we pivot and talk about something much more encouraging, and that's, that's these stories that we just heard read in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this morning, we're continuing to preach through this wonderful Gospel of Matthew. And for the last few weeks, we've been in this section that we call chapters 8 and 9 that goes from 8.1 through 9.34 through our end of our passage today. And that's fine that we call it chapters 8 and 9, but from Matthew's perspective, this is really just one section. And this section, from Matthew's perspective, consists of three sets of three stories, and our stories are the last set of that, stitched together with little stories about discipleship. So I put it together on a little simple outline here you can see on the screen. Um, again, the point of this is not to overwhelm you. The point is not to make this more complicated. You don't have to write this down or anything. This is my job to figure this stuff out. What's important for you to know today and for me is to help us all realize that this these stories that we just heard are not just a sort of random collection of sayings that have just been thrown together, but instead they're very intentional and they have a point. Now, day in and day out, Jesus was with people. He was talking with them. He was teaching them. He was loving them, eating meals with them. And in the midst of this, as these two chapters especially show, he was constantly healing people. He saw people's brokenness and their needs and out of compassion and love, he gave a lot of his time, these chapters are showing us, to restore people, to bless people. I love how the church father Chrysostom describes it. He says, in Jesus' day, there were miracles like snowflakes falling all around him. Like every, every hour of the day, he was blessing people and healing people. 
And these stories that Matthew gives us are really just a selection of all those day in and day out things that were, that were happening. They're a representative collection that have been sort of curated and crafted into these three sets of three. And today, we're going to look at this last set. So what happens? Well, let's look at the first one. The first of our stories, and if you have a bulletin, you can see it there. You can look in a Bible as well. It happens in verses 18 to 26, and it's actually a double story. It's two stories that have been sandwiched together, and Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell this very same story in the same kind of double sandwiched way. Matthew, as is typical, doesn't care about the details, so he doesn't tell us hardly anything about it. But we know from Mark and Luke that this guy, this first character we meet, had a name, and his name was Jairus. And Jairus, this man who comes up to him, is a faithful Jew. He's a leader in the synagogue in Capernaum where they are. And despite the fact that there is increasing tension between the synagogue and Jesus, if you look back earlier in chapter 9, you'll see that the the synagogue leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, they are not happy with Jesus because he's doing all these disruptive things and even says that he forgives someone their sin apart from the temple through his own proclamation. So they're very unhappy with him. But this man, despite being part of the synagogue, a leader there, he is desperate because... He has just experienced what has got to be one of the worst human experiences that anyone, the the griefs that any human could experience, and that is the death of a child. And so in the midst of this grief, probably even because of this grief, he's desperate and he believes Jesus can help him. So so far we've seen Jesus heal people, people after people, hundreds of people, perform amazing miracles, but this is really next level. Because so far, he's healed very sick people, but this girl is already dead. And yet this man has enough desperate faith to go to Jesus on his knees and ask him to come. If you just come and touch her, she will be, she will be raised up. So Jesus stops his teaching. He's teaching, right, in the verses before this, and he starts following this man to his house with all the disciples and the crowd pressing around him as always. And at this point, we expect it to be a normal, compassionate healing story, and it is that, but then something else unexpected happens in the midst of this. Another person's life intersects with this story. We see in verse 20 that there's a woman who was probably very well known in this little village, but not for a good reason, but for a very sad and embarrassing reason. This woman had some kind of chronic disease that made her bleed constantly. And this was not only embarrassing and probably made her physically weak all the time, but according to Jewish law and custom, this also had the added burden of making her religiously unclean. For various reasons, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 15 says that any person who's bleeding is unclean, and therefore any person that, or any object that that bleeding person touched is also unclean. So this poor woman is 12 years into being socially and religiously restricted and excluded. Anything she drank from, anything she sat on, anyone she bumped into, she made them unclean as well. And this would be horrible for anyone in the ancient world, but doubly so for a woman who already has, you know, is unfortunately, sadly, placed on a lower rung of society. So it's a horrible situation. Imagine that, can you? Imagine if you had some kind of condition 
or disease that meant that no one could touch you. And then also beyond that, that anything you touched, everyone else had to avoid. To sit anywhere in public, you couldn't touch anything, not just for fear of germs, but even with this added religious element to it as well. Just think about the loneliness, the sadness, the grief of this horrible situation that this woman's in. So here she is. She hears there's this amazing miracle worker, Jesus, that touches people and heals them. Maybe she was right there when she heard this synagogue leader come up and ask on behalf of his little daughter that, that Jesus would raise her up. And she thinks to herself, Jesus can raise the dead. He, he cares about a young girl and is willing to even take time to help. Maybe, maybe there is hope for me. I, I won't dare approach him but if I can just kind of quietly get through the crowd and if I can just barely touch and just even if I could just touch his garment, maybe, maybe I will be healed. And she does. And totally unexpectedly in the midst of this crowd, Jesus stops and turns and looks right at her. Take Bobkas. That's Yiddish for oh crap. She said something like that, probably. <laughs> Busted. She's in big trouble now. Not only has she been in this horrible situation to her inability to imagine it's gotten worse, now the one with power is actually turn and look at me and I am in big trouble. But then look at verse 22. Jesus turned and he saw her and he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. In that moment, the woman was healed. So rather than a rebuke or a rejection, the only thing this woman has known for these last 12 years, Jesus kindly and lovingly looks at her, looks her in the eyes and speaks peace to her. Rather than being condemned, she's commended. This whole crowd who probably knows who she is and avoids her religiously, now instead of her being condemned, she is upheld as a model of faith. And then immediately she feels in her body that she has been healed. Now our story could end there, but it doesn't. Then Jesus goes on to the synagogue leader's house to care for another daughter. And he enters the house and there's this commotion. There's a loud, noisy crowd and people weeping because of this, this little child's death. And certainly, many of those people would have been family and friends, but we also know from Jewish custom that many of these would have been professional hired mourners. The Jewish tradition at this time was that, according to the Mishnah, that even the poorest people had to, quote, hire not less than two pipe players and one wailing woman. And I know it sounds weird to us, but if you start thinking about it, every culture has kind of weird death customs. We have plenty of weird ones too, right? Well, this is one of the things the Jewish people did is that they would have, that's what the pipes were referenced when you were looking at the text there, we had it read, that there were people that would be playing these pipes that were associated with mourning, and then there would be people wailing, some of them friends, some of them professionals. And so Jesus comes into this situation, in verse 24, he steps into the noisy crowd and he says the most unexpected thing. He says, this girl's not dead, she's just asleep. 
Well, everybody knows that she's dead. There's no doubt. And in fact, Matthew's already told us that she's dead. Jesus knows that she's dead. This is not, he's not questioning that. So why in the world would Jesus say, hey, she's not dead, she's asleep? Well, I think one of the reasons was that Jesus, he was not a showman. He was not a performer who is performing all these compassionate healings for the purpose of drawing a crowd. His healings were not a gimmick to get people in the door so he could preach the gospel to them or something. If Jesus wanted to draw a crowd, he would have done it the opposite way. He would have said, bring the funeral bed out into the courtyard and watch this. Instead, he doesn't. His motivation is not to draw a crowd. His motivation is love and compassion. And we see several times in our stories that actually Jesus tells, and the next story we'll see here in just a second, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone what he's done. Why? Because the crowds were just getting too much. Not that he didn't care, but he had a mission to bless people and to preach and to go to the cross himself, not just to bring a big crowd around himself. I think there's another reason probably why he did this privately and dismisses everyone. It's because one of the things we see in the Gospels regularly is that when Jesus says something, it often sounds like he's saying one thing, but he's saying something deeper and more profound at the same time. And I think that's clearly what's going on here too. When he says, this girl is not dead, she's just asleep, we who can read the whole of the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end and know how the story ends, you know how the story ends? Jesus himself dies and then rises from the grave. That's crucial to the story. What Jesus is saying here, I believe, is that for anyone who believes in him, death becomes merely sleep. That is something from which those who believe will be awakened. So while she is truly dead, he can describe her death as merely sleep because she her story of being dead and then made alive is like a, it's a micro picture. It's like a pocket icon of what Jesus himself is going to bring into the world through his own death and resurrection. And that's exactly what happens. He dismisses the crowd. He goes to the deathbed of this precious little girl, takes her by the hand and raises her to life. And verse 26, if you look at it, is almost funny at this point. It's almost like, why even say this? Especially if Jesus is hoping not to increase his crowds. Of course, the report spread everywhere. Uh, when, a, when a once sick and then dead girl, the daughter of a synagogue leader who's going to testify about this, is now walking around again, of course everyone's going to hear about this. And the report spreads all the way down to Louisville, Kentucky today. But our story doesn't end there. We see in verses 27 to 31, another account of two people being healed. First, it was two women. Now, it is two men who are like the dead girl and the bleeding woman, unclean and restricted from society. These two men who are blind. And in the ancient Near East, blindness was, was considered very unclean and very bad in ways beyond what we even think. And Jesus encounters these two blind men who have... They've obviously heard again about Jesus' great power and kindness, and they're listening to his words, and they're following him around, and then they begin to cry out for mercy. And what's really interesting in verse 27 is specifically what they say. They say, son of David, have mercy on us. 
What's really striking about this is these are the very first people in the Gospel of Matthew to, to call Jesus son of David. Back in chapter 1, this was the main point, is that Jesus is the true son of David. That is the descendant of King David, who, by, according to the prophets, will come and restore God's kingdom of heaven upon the earth. Chapter 1 is what that's all about. In fact, it's in the first verse of Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. But nobody has seen that up to this point until these two blind men see it. And they call him son of David with great faith. And then he goes to the house. They follow him in there, crying out for mercy from him. He talks to them and says, do you believe I can do this? He's drawing out their faith just like he did with others. And then reaches out, touches their eyes, and they can both see. And again, look at verse 31. He tells them not to tell anybody, but fat chance of that. <laughs> again, they of course go and tell everyone what happened. And then finally, one more story to conclude this little triad that caps off this intricate and intriguing set of nine stories, really, in Matthew 8 and 9. It's so short, let me just read it for you. Verse 32, while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk, and the word here actually means he was probably mute and deaf as well. He couldn't speak or, or, or hear, was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Now, this last of all these stories in Matthew 8 and 9, this last of the stories in some ways is the most amazing. A demon-possessed person who cannot speak or hear, completely cut off from society, completely helpless, and yet it's told in the most non-dramatic way at all. We don't get, we're not given any details about it. It just happens as if this was no big deal for Jesus to do this. And I think it's because Matthew really wants to end this set of stories to foreshadow what's going to come, and that is two very different responses to Jesus' ministry. On the one hand, you have the crowds, the regular people who see this. They don't have any prejudices against believing in Jesus. They are in desperate need, and they say nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. And there were some pretty amazing things done in the history of Israel through the prophets, like people getting swallowed by fish and then coming out alive, the Jordan River being uh, divided, multiplication of widow's oil, uh, a floating axe head, a sundial turning back 10 degrees, all these kind of things. But all these people see the, they know these stories, and they see all this countless event after event of Jesus healing people and calming storms, and they just say, we've never seen anything like this. But there's another reaction, too, and you can see it there in the Pharisees. The opposite, they say, Jesus is demonic. I mean, it's, it's desperate. It is, a, it is a desperate attempt because they cannot fit Jesus into their preconceived notions, and so they just have to write him off. And again, that's very important sort of foreshadowing for what's going to happen in the next few chapters. So there's our stories. And I said at the beginning that these these are not just random stories. There's a point to all this. What's the point? Well, what ties these together? I, there are a lot of things we could say. We could, we could pull out the emphasis that each of these stories puts on faith, that every one of these people really believe Jesus is able to do this. We could talk about Jesus' authority and his compassion and his power to heal. We could talk about the fact that, interestingly, in all three of these stories, you have people that are very cut off from society 
that Jesus restores them into community, the bleeding woman, the blind man, and the demon-possessed man, and how God's heart is to cross boundaries. He's not revulsed by brokenness, but in fact, he welcomes it and heals it. And we could also talk about the two different reactions to Jesus. And I could preach a sermon on every one of those, and that would be true and good and helpful. But I want to point out another thing from these three stories today. I feel like God wants me to say to you today, another key idea. And you know, biblical stories, it's always good to remember, are always simultaneously telling us something about ourselves and something about God. And I think that's true for these stories as well. And we need the Bible because we need help understanding who we are and we need help understanding who God is. So what does this story tell us about us? Well, I can sum it up in one word, and it's the first word in the title if you look in the bulletin of the sermon, and that is desperate. When you look at these characters and these stories, what's really striking to me about them is that they are all absolutely desperate. They are completely at the end of their tethers, the end of their ropes. They have no other hope but to cast themselves on Jesus. Now, you may look at that and say, okay, yeah, that's true, but that's not me. I mean, my life's pretty good. Well, I want to say to you that there are actually just two kinds of people in the world. We tend to think the two kinds of people in the world are those who have desperate need and those who don't have desperate need. I'd like to suggest to you the reality is that the two kinds of people in the world are those who have desperate need and recognize it and those who have desperate need and don't recognize it. That's the reality. Those who have desperate need and recognize it, those who have desperate need and don't recognize it. And now I can bring back the post-apocalyptic stories here because what I think the reason those haunt us so much when we hear those and just begin to imagine, and maybe for some of you that causes a lot of fear, I'm not trying to cause undue fear in you, but I'm trying to say what those stories reveal to us is what our true state is. The precariousness of all of our lives is actually revealed in those stories. And again, maybe zombies aren't going to take over or whatever it is. It could be some other situation. Some of those are probably not realistic. But, you know, the reality is that for you and me, we're facing another week that could include a car accident, financial ruin, maybe a brain aneurysm like my father at age 42, completely healthy, had an aneurysm, fell over and died in my mother's arms, sudden cancer report. Whatever it is, that is actually our situation. And of course, for all of us, what is certain is mortality eventually. And you see, this is part of the danger that I think we all face in a very affluent society. And this is why the Bible talks about riches so much. Not because riches are bad, not because success and honor and fame and goodness and hard work bearing fruit. Not that those things are bad. They're not at all. God has made the world that way. Those are all good. The problem is not riches or wealth or honor or security or retirement plans. There's no problem with any of that. The problem is that those things have a particular ability to blind us to the desperation of our real situation. That's their problem. 
Nothing wrong with success or riches. It's the danger of their blinding ability to make us not see that we're desperate. Some of us here today, you feel your desperation. Some of us here today don't feel that your life's very desperate, you've got it. For you, I want to lovingly push you a little bit and ask you to consider the fragility of life. Some of us here today, maybe you have faced so much desperation that you can't face it anymore and you're just numb. You may know the famous line from Henry David Thoreau, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. He continues with this insight. What is called resignation is actually confirmed desperation. An unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. In other words, so much of how we spend our energy is because we are aware of our desperate situation and we can't face it anymore. And so we amuse ourselves and we entertain ourselves away from that reality or try to. And maybe you're just resigned. Maybe you feel beat up or given up. I want to reboot your heart drive if I can and get it back online, not by providing an escape or a distraction, but by actually inviting you to face the truth of our desperate situation. Not to cause undue fear, not to minimize the real situations that are, you know, there are times of acute desperation, but as an invitation for you and me to recognize our utter dependence on God for every breath. And that leads me to say the most important thing, which is what do these stories tell us, not just about us, but about God? And what these stories reveal to us is that God in Christ is both compassionate and capable. That God in Christ for us is fully compassionate towards our desperation and entirely capable towards our desperation. Jesus' compassion and authority is repeated all throughout these stories, all throughout the gospel. Jesus' ability, his capacity to heal, this is what we've been seeing. There's this parade of all kinds of diseases, all kinds of people in high and low places, storms coming upon the disciples, the ability to forgive sins, all these things, these stories are constantly showing us Jesus is capable. And if you think about it, when you have, if you had compassion without capability, if Jesus was compassionate but he didn't have capability, he'd just be a good comforting friend, and that's a good thing. But if Jesus had capability without compassion, he would be respectable and fear-inducing, but it would be no help. But God for us in Christ is revealed as having both compassion and capacity, fully, in their fullness for us. So I'm going to give you a couple equations, a couple word problems here, which is a bad association, I realize, but a couple of equations for you to take away from today. Look at the first one on the slide here. If you have desperate minus compassionate minus capable, then the result in our lives is despair and death. And it is easy to despair when you start to pay attention to how difficult life is and how overwhelming it is. And if there is no person who is both compassionate and capable, then it is a result of, the result is despair and death. But Here's 
the most important equation I want you to take away from this. And if you have a pen, I would like you to take the title in your, of this message in the bulletin and change those minuses to pluses. And that is that when you take our desperation and add to it God's compassion and it, that he's capable, the result is hope and life. That our desperation added to God's compassion and capacity means hope and life. Friends, behold the God of the Bible, the God of reality, that no situation is too small for him to care about and no situation is too big for him to handle. Can I say that again? No situation is too small for him to care about and no situation is too big for him to handle. These sayings that are spoken in the midst of these stories can be ours as well. Lord, come and put your hand on my daughter and she will live. Maybe you have a wayward child. Maybe you have a sick child. Lord, come, touch my child and she will live. If I could just touch the fringe of his garment, the woman says, that can be your prayer and your heart as well, to seek the Lord. Son of David, have mercy on us. Each of these lines can and should be ours because our desperation is met with Christ's compassion and capacity. Doesn't mean we'll always get what we want. It doesn't mean everything will always work out in the way we think, but we know that God is compassionate and capable. This week, as I was uh, doing some research for a book I'm writing, I ran across a story that I'd forgotten about, and it goes back to July 31st of 1976, and high up in the mountains of Colorado, there was a sudden storm that night, the dark of that night, that poured 14 inches of precipitation in just a few hours way up in the mountains, and that accumulated rain had nowhere to go but down, and down the canyon of the Big Thompson River it went. And this normally small kind of scenic winding river became a torrent with a 20-foot wall of water cascading down the valley at 70 miles an hour, taking with it everything in its path, exploding propane tanks, bridges, cars, branches, boulders, and people. People who were so tumbled down this at such a speed that their clothes were ripped from their bodies. And nearly 150 people died that night in that canyon. And among the many people in the valley that night was a group of 35 women leaders from Campus Crusade for Christ, including Vonette Bright, the co-founder and wife of the founder, Bill Bright. These unsuspecting women were up at a ranch in the valley. They were singing and praying, enjoying each other. And all of a sudden, it was a rainy night. They didn't think much of it. And then all of a sudden, they heard the shrill megaphone calls of the state troopers to evacuate immediately. So they went out in the dark night and piled into several cars and tried to flee the ranch. And some of the cars were able to follow the police and for a while, and then they had to get out and climb up to higher ground and spent the night just up there waiting for the storm to pass. A couple of the cars got separated in the dark as they were leaving the ranch and got blown off of a bridge. Most of the people in those cars died, two women they were in those cars, got out of the windows, and tumbled down the river at 70 miles an hour, 
their lungs and noses being filled with mud and dirt and rocks until both of them separately caught a hold of a tree and were able to climb up and wait out the storm and the night. Imagine yourself. What a picture of humanity in its true state of desperation. And imagine the long night and the next morning as the husbands and families and friends of those 35 women waited to hear what happened to them. No cell phones, right? No way to know. And that next morning, not knowing whether his wife was still alive or not, he knew she was up there, Bill Bright led a prayer meeting for the crusade staff, and, and he was able to do so and to give thanks because in his desperation, he knew that God was both compassionate and capable. And that no matter what the outcome was, God was good. Just there's more to the story. I wish I had time to tell you. But I'll just say my personal part of it is that just over 10 years later, crusade people that were impacted by that story shared the gospel with me. And I became a Christian because I realized my desperation. I remember saying to the man when he was sharing the gospel with me, what am I going to do? That's the place we all are. Can you think of a time you were really desperate, waiting to hear about a medical result? Maybe a child in an accident. I hate it when my kids call me. I'd rather have them text me because when I call, I'm always sure they've had a car accident, <laughs> right? Maybe you're sitting in the ashes of a marriage that you've screwed up. Maybe you're being wrongly accused and facing legal action or job loss. These situations can be completely overwhelming. And I don't want to in any way make trite of the, the panic, the real emotions, the anxiety we feel. God has all kinds of space for your emotions, friends. He's not anxious. He has all kinds of space for whatever emotions you have. So I'm not minimizing the reality of that, but I want to invite you to say that in those moments of desperation, if you don't know someone who has compassion and capacity, I don't know how you can live. I don't know how you can put one foot in front of the other. And so to conclude today, I just want to give you two thoughts. I don't have any actions for you to do. I just want to put two thoughts in your head for you to practice this week as you go through what, who knows what any of, any of us will experience this week. And the first is this, that we can learn to practice this reality of our desperate state. We can learn to practice it. We can learn to practice the reality of our desperate state. We can educate our emotions and our sensibilities with this truth about us that we are utterly dependent on God, but I don't want you to stop there and then add to it the remembrance, the knowledge that God cares for you and is able to care for you. And you can remind yourself of that before you get out of bed and throughout your day, maybe put it on a note card to practice the reality, to train your sensibilities that this is really the state you and I are in. And then the second one is that then we can learn to embrace our moments of desperation as gifts. That those moments that we do taste desperation, 
not to minimize the reality of them, not to minimize their emotional effect, not to say just get over it or something, not at all like that, but to over time learn that those moments of desperation are gifts to us because they reveal the reality of our situation. So they're gifts. They're gifts of wake-up calls. They're gifts of the megaphone saying to evacuate. You see, friends, thirst is bad unless it's met with a cool, clean flow of water, and then the thing you want the most is thirst. And hunger is bad unless it is met with a free feast, and then it is the best gift. And our moments of desperation are moments of thirst and hunger so that we might eat, so that we might taste and see God's goodness. And we love to end every service, as Christians always do, by using these images that remind us of both our desperate state and God's kindness and compassion toward us. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it right in front of his disciples as an image of what he was about to do for us. And he took a cup of wine and he poured it out and shared it with his disciples as an image of what he was about to do, our desperate state meeting his compassion and capacity. And that, friends, is the gospel. That's the good news. So I'm going to pause now, and I'm going to just invite you to a time of silence. I'd like you to just turn to the Lord with whatever is going on for you, fears, anxieties, hopes, joys. And then I'm going to lead us in a brief prayer. And the musicians are going to come forward. And if you're a Christian today, if this is your hope, then come forward and take a portion, as we share this communion together, a portion of this broken body and dip it in the poured out blood as a reminder of God's compassion and capacity meeting our desperation. Let me invite you to a moment of silence. I'm Kevin Jamison, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.